So you may not know this, but when I was in seminary, you know, pastors back in, back in the day, in the mid-80s, were trained and socialized to be lone rangers, okay? Which fit my personality really well, and it's taken me a really long time in my life to realize that I'm not the lone ranger. I don't have to do everything myself. That it is not only is it okay for me to work with people, to be in collaborative relationships, um, not only is it okay, but it's essential. I really can't be who I'm called to be if we don't have those relationships, if we don't have that camaraderie and collaboration and that, that, working, uh, that, that working ethos. But I will confess, um, because they say confession is good for the soul, that I still struggle with that idea of feeling like I need to do it all myself. And I think that one of the, the reasons that, that that is the case is that I have a difficult time with feeling vulnerable. You know, and when you collaborate with people, if you're not doing it all yourself and you're working with somebody, you're putting your self in their hands. And that's a pretty vulnerable experience. And not everybody deals with vulnerability equally well. So there are times, not as many as there used to be, but there are times that I do struggle with just the concept of being vulnerable. But I have to tell you, on Monday, I don't know of a time that I ever felt more vulnerable than I did. Sally texted, I was, was here in my office, and Sally texted me a few minutes after 10, and she said, come home with an exclamation, okay? I said, Marty, I'm gone. And by the time I just got five blocks, and I drove, um, by the time I got five blocks, the water was already higher than all of the door frames around the house. And if you read my uh, article in The Voyager, I had to go around to the side of the house and bang on the kitchen window and Sally helped me take the screen out and she passed a step stool out through the window and I had to crawl into the house because I didn't dare open any of the doors in the house for fear more water coming in. And that is the worst, most vulnerable moment that I remember to stand in my home and watch the water coming in and knowing that there was nothing that I could do to stop it. It was a sickening feeling. And what are we gonna lose? How high is the water gonna come? I mean, you can imagine what that was like. And the bargaining that goes on. I thought, well, I can't stop the water, but I don't know, maybe I can move stuff to higher ground or move furniture. And I was so grateful because I had, I had within probably two minutes of being home and realizing what was going on, I texted Joy Lim, who's on the Parsonage Committee, and I said, send me, and I didn't, with no explanation, I said, send me Jeff's number because her husband Jeff is the chair of trustees. And I figure, well, my first call should be to the chair of trustees so that at least he knows what's going on. 
before I know it, Joy texts me and she says, I'm on my way. She had to climb through the window like we did. We, we, we set out about trying. We, couldn't, we knew we couldn't push the waters back, but let's get everything dry. So music and school books from Sally, you know, upstairs. Other things that were vulnerable, upstairs. All of the furniture, the dining room set that we were given years and years ago, onto the tile, I mean, trying to protect everything that we could and hoping and praying that the water would not rise anymore. And, and, and it didn't, thankfully. But still, there was so much work to do and so much bargaining that was going on. Once we triaged everything and got it dry, Joy and I looked at each other and said, we just got to pull the carpet out. I mean, it was almost this desperation feeling on, on my part. We pulled out the carpet, we pulled out the padding, we pulled out the baseboards. Not long after we started, um, Rob and Shay showed up and they're with their shop vac and we're shop vacing and we're cutting carpet and pulling it and just tossing it in the backyard. Okay, the backyard looks like a slide zone, but I don't care about that right now. Hoping and praying, almost like bargaining with God that these efforts that we would do would prevent any further damage in the house. You know, I didn't want people coming in and cutting wallboard and doing all of that. The age of the house, I was worried about asbestos or lead or any, I didn't want any of that because I didn't want to be out of my house. And so we're working and we're trying hard and praying. And like I said, bargaining that this would be enough as if I could stop water. Okay. But water has a mind of its own. Water will go where water's going to go. It's just simple physics. And I don't know what's going to come next, but... But all of this experience this week has given me a new way of relating to and understanding the text that Sally and I read um, before you just a few minutes ago. Because you see, this story is about two people who were very, very different. Very different. Jairus is a person of renown. He's a leader of the synagogue. He has power and he has authority. And then there's a woman whose name we don't know, who is at the opposite end of the spectrum. She is utterly vulnerable. She has spent all of her money and her means on doctor's cures that didn't cure her. She's very likely alone and separated. You couldn't pick two people that were farther apart than Jairus and this woman. And yet the one thing that they have in common in this moment is that Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to be in close proximity to them. And each, Jairus and the woman, each in their, in their own need, in their own feeling of vulnerability, they have a sa the same thought, and that is to go to Jesus. We don't know how or why they believe that Jesus has the ability, the capacity to meet their needs, 
Maybe they don't know it for sure. Maybe it is just a wild hope, but they both seek Jesus out. And, and they risk, both of them, each in their own way, they risk a lot by coming to Jesus. Jairus, as a leader of the establishment, for him to come to Jesus in that moment, for him to even acknowledge that Jesus is, is, has the power and the authority to, to meet his need, would have been tantamount to blasphemy to some people. So Jairus is risking his power and his prestige. And why? Because his daughter is sick. I mean, how many stories do we hear of people who risk so much because someone that they love is sick? And they'll do anything. And that's Jairus. And Jesus doesn't scorn Jairus. I mean, even though the, the, the opposition from within the establishment of Israel had not reached its zenith yet, there was still enough there that Jesus could have said, you're one of, you know, I don't have time for you. You know, if you're not going to listen to me, if you're not going to just even be willing to engage me, I got no time for you. But he doesn't. He says, okay, let's go. It's like drops everything and goes. The woman, on the other hand, I can imagine that the woman comes to Jesus in the midst of this crowd as stealthily as she possibly can. She would have been known to her crowd. I can imagine her with a cloak and up over her head and covering her face. You know, anything that would be identifiable, she her up so that she could find her way through the crowd and not be seen. Because the minute she was seen and recognized, people would have gone, you know, like this. And it would have been like the parting of the Red Sea. They would have made space because nobody dare get close to her. Nobody would dare have any kind of physical contact. I mean, they would not initiate contact, but they wouldn't want to be anywhere near her lest her stain stain them. And the fact that she makes it close enough to Jesus to touch his cloak, cloak means that she was successful. She risks being recognized, being scorned by the crowd first, and it, once her secret is discovered, she wouldn't have been able to get anywhere near Jesus because they, the crowd would have prevented her from seeing Jesus. She risks further scorn, further um, separation and alienation to go see Jesus. And Jesus himself, at that point, you touched me. I can't believe you touched me. Why would you touch me? Do you realize now I've got to go make my sacrifice to be clean again because you touched me? Jesus could have said that, but he didn't. Jairus and the woman risk so much, but their need and their vulnerability in that moment and their hope and their faith and their trust in Jesus kind of overrode all of that. Think about that. What an amazing story of faith that is. And the, and the faith that's being described is not just a, a thought 
like belief, like a cognitive thing, but it is a trust. How much do you have to trust another person to put yourself, to put your life, to put your well-being in their hands? Whenever you go to the doctor, and I know that we have physicians here, you know, and I'm sure that the physicians know and understand how much trust their patients invest in them to put themselves in their hands. And this is what Jairus and the woman have done. And this is a, this is a really critical place for us to understand faith as trust and trust that empowers action. You know, we, we live in a culture where faith is often talked about in very, very different terms. That faith is associated with a certain level of belief. And I hear in some religious traditions, you know, when um, in, in some faith communities where there's been a, a uh, a church member or a child that's been sick, been, been terminally ill or chronically ill, and the congregation prays and they pray fervently and the parents pray fervently. And I've heard people and I've heard stories of people that say to parents, well, you know, either, well, God, they needed another angel or, you know, the, the more obnoxious ones that say, well, you just must not have prayed hard enough. Can you imagine that? But that reality exists in our culture that somehow by the, the, the strength of our own back and the sweat of our own brow, we can bend the arc of God's justice and grace in our direction. That we can arm twist God. You know, and, and I've never been a big, uh, a big fan of that as a theological construct but I came face to face with it in a way that I'd never had before because praying and arm twisting God was not going to stop the water from coming under my door. Faith as trust. And this is what scripture calls us to. This is what Jesus teaches. Faith as trust is the, is the willingness to trust our vulnerability and our greatest need to the Christ who is present with us. Okay, when we, you know, the idea of Emmanuel that we use at Christmas time, God with us, is not just a Christmas thing. Emmanuel, God with us, Christ with us is an everyday, every moment reality for all of us. Jesus responds to the vulnerability of Jairus and this woman with generosity. He didn't scorn them. He didn't question them. He didn't do a background check on them. He knew their need and he responded in that moment. And that's the, 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 the hope that scripture gives to us. And, and, and the willingness to trust that, to trust the totality of who we are to the Christ who is present with us to bring healing, that even when the waters rise, <laughs> figuratively or literally, 
that even as the waters rise in our life, this trust reminds us that God will always make a way out of no way. God will always make a way out of no way. We don't, we don't have the opportunity to, you know, kind of kibitz alongside God as God makes a way for us. Our job is to bring that vulnerability, that need to that moment of grace and walk the path with God as God walks the path with us. We have a lot of people, we've seen the pictures on the news this week, pictures in, here in town and people in the city, play other places in the country, but it's, it's, it's different when it's our neighbors. And we don't know what this week is going to hold in terms of all of the effort for recovery, okay? Did the storm drains in East San Diego get cleared of debris? so that this doesn't happen again. Don't know. Are all of the sewer pumps and sump pumps up by the country club, are they working? Will they? No, I know the answer to that question is no. Will they be working? We don't know. Can we pump two feet of water out of Carl Turnipseed's basement, you know, and have it stay? I mean, these, it's okay that we don't know these. And we work, I mean, I'm working on a sandbag strategy right now to keep the water from even getting close to the house because it's the prudent thing to do. But we don't know what recovery is going to look like. We don't know how many days we're going to be out of the house. We don't, we don't know any of it. I don't know any of this. Do I feel vulnerable still? Oh, yeah. But if, if I'm going to be the person that can stand in that spot every week and bear witness to faith, then the person who's sitting on this stool and living it firsthand has to be the person who can say, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust the presence of the risen Christ with the vulnerability that I feel right now and know that God will make a way out of no way. And I don't expect it to be easy, but I know one thing is that being a part of this community of faith and what you have taught me in a short amount of time about generosity is making an enormous difference in facing this today. So thank you, and thanks be to God. Amen.